Counterplanning from the Kitchen for a Feminist Critique of Type by Maria Esquidici. Whilst housing has long been a terrain of struggle in terms of its scale, provision, urban morphology and technological advancement, it often escapes a political critique of its interior logic. And yet, it is perhaps only from a political perspective that we might be able to see beyond the impasse that we are witnessing. If most of the newly built stock conforms to models established more than a century ago, an increasing number of experimental proposals reimagine domesticity with a checkered success that is surprising if we consider how ill-fitting the petty bourgeois family flat is to our current conditions. In such a conjecture, the concept of type seems to be still a useful ground for debate as it helps us to read housing as a tool for the construction of subjects. At the core of this mandate crisis lies a great unsaid of Western society, namely the role played by the house in the institutionalization of reproductive labor. Reproductive labor is the care, education, and actual production of the labor force, from childbearing to housework to care for the elderly, a form of labor that, before mature capitalism, was never seen as separate from other productive activities. In this sense, this paper assumes a feminist standpoint in that it rereads modern housing as the place of women's hidden, unwaged work and typological discourse as the intellectual and technical arsenal that has allowed the fine-tuning of such a labour system. The hypothesis that will be explored is that reproductive labour itself is undergoing a large-scale shift that architecture is struggling to register. In order to understand this shift, we will look at the recent architectural production of three nations, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Japan, where a strong design culture has met an acute awareness of the recent changes in the organisation of work. Looking at the work by MVRDV, Christian Keres and Sana, we will try to construct a map of possible solutions for housing beyond reproductive labour and perhaps beyond type itself. So that was uh, just the abstract. Okay. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. The Universal Exhibition that took place in London in 1851 is mostly remembered because of the Crystal Palace, a greenhouse-turned-monument, an abstract skeleton of cast iron and glass, a harbinger of modernity's obsession for flexibility and homogeneity. However, right in front of the palace, the British architect Henry Roberts built an unassuming two-floor prototype that was to become even more enduringly influential than its neighbour. The model house the model houses for families were presented at the exhibition as a simple aggregation of four units. But as the unit is repeatable, Roberts put forward ultimately a model for living that could and would trigger large scale applications. Roberts model houses are a good example of the way in which a small scale architectural proposal can, by virtue of its repeatability, have an impact on the city itself as the rather unassuming 1851 prototype would go on to influence in a determinate manner the way housing has been conceived, designed and inhabited in the last 150 years. The link between production of type and production of the city is not always a straightforward one, and yet in this case, the model houses quite explicitly posit themselves as the key built ingredient of a future urban scenario. More interestingly, though, Roberts did not content himself with the possibility of influencing the city, but rather aimed to put forward an actual idea of society and a specific form of subjectivity. It is this link between city, type and subjectivity that I'll try to discuss in the following paragraphs. 
With its grid of columns, the Crystal Palace embodied a spatial archetype based on evenness. The variety of millions of products originating from all over the globe would be displayed within an equalising framework, where the only sense of direction and hierarchy was provided by the presence of a central nave and dome. No choreography would be imposed on the movement of the visitors to the palace. On the contrary, the aim of the model houses was to create hierarchies, orchestrate asymmetries and ultimately enforce very specific behaviours. The flat is dominated by a living room that gives access to two small bedrooms as well as a scullery. From the scullery, one can access a water closet and large bedroom. The plan spells out very clearly the type of family life it is designed for. Mother and father will sleep in the main bedroom, from which the mother has easy access to the scullery, but also visual control of the living room. The children should be divided by gender, one room for boys, one for the girls. The family should not need to share anything with their neighbours, apart from a space to launder and dry larger items therefore becoming truly nuclear in its functioning. Of course, it would be impossible to claim that Robert single-handedly invented this spatial organisation. After all, the success of the model is due to the simplicity with which it crystallises the biological unit of reproduction, a man, a woman, their offspring. Throughout continental Europe, most urban dwellers lived in flats, which, with a growing concern for privacy, were organised roughly following this logic, as it is clear from handbooks from the mid-1700s. However, what Roberts did was to offer a repeatable, optimised layout. What he designed is, therefore, not only a spatial type, it's a set of human types. Paraphrasing Tolstoy, Roberts' proposal suggested that all happy families should be alike. The Roberts model has become so diffused in the 150 years after its inception that today we barely question the the fact that a flat should be partitioned into a living room, kitchen, bathroom, master bedroom and children's bedrooms. The very nature of these spaces remains unchallenged since Roberts' time. The model houses for families have become the most invisible and yet pervasive type a spatial organisation that is in fact a social diagram. Imagined in a specific historical and geographical context, Robert's diagram has gone on to become a totalising apparatus that can now be found all over the world, enforcing a form of life that very often is at odds with the actual needs of the inhabitants. The ubiquitous repetition of this diagram should raise some questions. In fact, we could say that the nuclear family flat is at the basis of contemporary city-making, not only in terms of sheer quantity, but also, and most importantly, as it produces the subjectivity of the contemporary city dweller. The basic question at the root of my inquiry is whether the correspondence of spatial diagram and social diagram is unavoidable, and if so, what kind of agency can we reclaim as architects and users? As I read type as a spatial organisation independent of function, it is a question that can apply to any kind of building or space. However, I will discuss here only housing examples. There are two reasons for this choice. On the one hand, I believe housing is the richest field within which we can develop such an inquiry, not only in terms of quantity, but also because it is a genre within which typological thinking has found its most widespread application. Typological thinking has been applied to housing relatively late in comparison to its emergence in the debate over public buildings, probably because, until the 1800s, the vast majority of houses were not built by architects. But in the mid-1800s, architects started to focus on typological experimentation applied to the domestic sphere and the link between organisation of space and organisation of life on a large scale was already very well understood in Robert's time. On the other hand, such a critique of type does not only involve architectural concerns, but has also social and political implications. 
a critical trajectory which can offer interesting insights into untangling the relationship between spatial and social diagrams can be found in the writings of feminist thinkers who devoted their work to the analysis of the house as social apparatus. It is for this reason that I call this line of inquiry a feminist critique of type inasmuch as it uses tools borrowed from feminist writers to rethink type as a tool for the construction of subjectivity. The specific feminist tradition I refer to coalesced around the Wages for Housework movement when, in the 1970s, a group of American and Italian writers sought to rethink the house as political and economic battleground. A seminal text of this movement is a 1975 pamphlet, Counterplanning from the Kitchen, in which Nicole Cox and Sylvia Frederici attack the very idea of domesticity that portrays the home as a place of rest and intimacy. Cox and Frederici read domestic space as a place of work and more specifically of what Marx already termed reproductive labour. Reproductive labour is the sum of all the efforts needed to make life possible, from childcare to elderly care to the constant emotional support of one's spouse. Reproductive labour has been posited in the last three centuries as something separated from production. By separating reproduction, reproductive or domestic labour from real or waged labour or production, this effort can go unseen and therefore unpaid and exploited. It becomes just the natural destiny of the woman, almost a pleasure. This artificial separation between women's labour of love and men's waged work has been constructed through a number of institutions and cultural practices, from modern marriage to the myth of romantic love. However, architecture has played a particularly crucial role in the development of division of the division between the productive workplace and the non-productive intimacy of the house. This division has happened through typological articulation and more specifically through the application of typological thinking to the production of housing. There have been many examples in modern architecture of emancipatory models of housing inspired by feminist ideas, examples that have tried to escape the rigid gendering of domestic space which arose in modernity. In the USA, Dolores Hayden published a counter-history of modern American architecture that remains a fundamental contribution to the field, entitled The Grand Domestic Revolution, a history of feminist designs for American homes, neighbourhoods and cities. A similar narrative is still to be retraced outside of the USA, but actual examples are definitely present and worth discussing, from Margaret Schutte-Lohotsky's Frankfurt Kitchen to Eileen Gray's radical interiors and beyond. However, it is not the objective of this article to consider the empowering potential of alternative models, be they inspired by feminist ideas or not. My aim here is, rather, to use the tools that feminist thinkers such as Frederici have developed to cast a different light on the conventional production of architecture. Paraphrasing a well-known saying of Manfredo Tafuri's, I believe there is no such thing as feminist architecture, just a feminist critique of architecture. So Tafuri said, there's no such thing as socialist architecture, only a socialist critique of architecture. So in the following pages, much as I would like to, I will not review radical experiments, but rather look at what kind of domestic spaces we are producing, where we come from and how, if at all, we are pushing the boundaries of convention. If it is a feminist debate, it is it is so in as much as it takes the issues of production and reproduction as key lenses through which to read ongoing dynamics. In this sense, the Roberts model, so banal as not to deserve more than a passing mention in most history books, becomes crucial. 
not because of its originality, but because it represents perhaps the first conscious attempt at institutionalising reproductive labour. Whilst many working class women would not have been stay-at-home housewives in 1851, Roberts imagines his model wife as a mother who spends her day managing the house. The presence of an independent kitchen and a water closet in the family flat was a great improvement on the poor living condition of the lower classes. And yet, this technological advancement, a luxury at the time, also chained women of the house to a specific role and a solitary one at that. Gone were the times of female solidarity forged while cooking, washing, taking care of children and working on various crafts. The housewife Roberts had in mind was alone in her self-contained unit. The seemingly innocuous, even well-intentioned operation of optimization put forward by Roberts in his ideal plan is in fact a large-scale project for the enforcement of a specific subjectivity enacted through the replication of one single possible type of happy family. Of course, by happy family, what I really mean is socially acceptable. Real happiness in the sense of intellectual and affective fulfilment is definitely not a concern in the larger scheme of things as projects like Roberts are aimed at shaping people's habits, not at encouraging emancipation. In this context, the most archetypal figure linked to unhappiness is the spinster, the single woman who is cut out of the natural happiness offered to those who serve reproduction. It is not surprising then that modernity has failed to come up with typological answers to the housing needs of the single female. And when this subject was addressed in the 1800s and 1900s, architects usually resorted to the use of pre-modern models such as the monastery. And yet, It is exactly the single woman who inspired one of the most radical living proposals of the last few decades. Power 1 and 2, Dwellings for the Tokyo Nomad Girl by Toyo Ito, 1985-89. The first power prototype was designed by Ito as an installation commissioned by a department store and it focused on a set of custom-built furniture pieces loosely arranged in a simple transparent tent. POW 2 was redesigned for an exhibition and featured a more elaborate envelope and urban strategy. In both cases, the POWs stand as polar opposite of the Roberts model for several reasons. Not least the fact that they refuse to posit the house as a type, as a spatial diagram, In these temporary installations, Ito imagines a tent that sits as a parasite on the roofs of existing buildings, sheltering its inhabitant, a single working woman represented in the 1985 photographs of Pal One by a young Kazuyo Sejima. The nomad girl does not cook. She does not even eat in the house, and the city itself becomes her dining room, her kitchen, her living room. She retreats to her tent only to find calm and solitude, to sleep, relax and indulge in hedonistic moments, such as putting on her makeup and storing nicely her designer clothes. The project is literally just a tent and a collection of playful light pieces Ito calls pre-furniture for styling, for intelligence and for snacking. Pal is a house that is radically devoid of any domestic labour. The nomad girl is the opposite of the housewife. But more interestingly, Pal is a house without a type, a generic enclosure with no kitchen, no bathroom and almost no architecture, just furniture. This project challenges all the categories we adhere to when we design a normal dwelling. It blurs the difference between sofa and bed living room and bedroom. It refuses to re-propose the traditional kitchen and bathroom that have become the workplace and prison of the housewife. Moreover, Powell does not have the ambition to become a model. It is not intended for replication. Whilst it does contain pieces of furniture that can be mass-produced, the tent itself becomes an ad hoc, almost a pyro radical intervention that disturbs the existing city as a constant reminder of another way of living.
Other nomad girls can perhaps buy the same furniture, but will need to arrange it in a way that is specific to their own needs, with no preset choreography of use, no typological blueprint. The Roberts model house, read in the light of a feminist critique of reproductive labour, makes quite explicit the way in which type has been used in the last centuries as a tool to produce specific subjects. Ito's POW shows a rejection of this condition, challenging the user to reimagine their form of life. Indeed, unhappy families seem to have at least the luxury of choice. The contemporary production of housing is somewhat suspended between these two opposing paradigms, the replication of the happy family and the search for a post-typological housing, very often inspired by the same ideas of flexibility that informed Ito's power. It has become rather evident that the Roberts model is inadequate to host forms of living that are increasingly diverse. Work and production cannot be so clearly separated, and the nuclear family has changed, perhaps waned. However, we still cling to many of the tropes crystallised by Roberts, including the characterization of different rooms by function. It is in this conjecture that the last decade has seen a return to the discussion of type. In his 1976 essay, The Third Typology, Anthony Vidler described the emergence of the discourse on type in three different historical contexts. If the first typology arose during the Enlightenment and hinged on the idea that architecture imitates nature, the second typology emerged after the Industrial Revolution assimilated architecture to the world of machine production. Vidler referred respectively to the writings of Logier and Le Corbusier as examples. The third typology was, on the other hand, a term Vidler used to indicate the debate of his contemporaries, who, rather than finding a rationale outside of architecture, rooted typology in the very formal logic of the city. Aldo Rossi's work is here, uh, Vidler's main case study. Vidler's analysis remains perhaps one of the sharpest writings on type, as rather than trying to define what type is, he contextualised its instrumental meaning in crucial passages of the modern debate. The three moments highlighted by Vidler all share, beyond their differences, a few similarities. They are moments in which a new social class needs to be addressed and in which architecture struggles to redefine itself as a discipline. These two conditions might or might not be related, but the fact remains that faced with the rise of, respectively, the bourgeoisie, the industrial proletariat and the white-collar worker, the first three typologies have offered architects an intellectual tool to deal with a shifting mandate. We might very well ask ourselves then why today the discourse on type seems relevant again and why it is so urgent to address it when it comes to housing, which is the genre that before any other is asked to accommodate and shape new subjects. In the following paragraphs, I shall therefore try to put forward a few conjectures on the predicament of type today looking at the recent housing production of three countries with an established architectural discourse and an ongoing production of high-quality housing, Switzerland, the Netherlands and Japan. The reason for this choice is simple. Whilst these three contexts rank high today in terms of GDP per capita and in terms of the development index, their economic and technological growth has not been a gradual process. If other countries, for instance, France, Germany, the USA, face the challenges of industrialization as early as the beginning of the 1800s, the chosen contexts were largely agrarian regions until the early 1900s. In all three cases, social and technological modernization happened very fast, erasing traditional culture and imposing on architects the heavy mandate to re-educate the new citizens within a few generations. I believe that this pressure cooker condition makes their architectural history particularly easy to read as transitions that took centuries in France, Germany and the USA. There happened in a few decades.
The passage from vernacular domestic space to designed and mass-produced housing has been very rapid, almost brutal. We could say that the same has happened in other countries from Eastern Europe to South America. However, what makes Switzerland, the Netherlands and Japan special are two other facts. First, all three contexts developed a sophisticated design culture. And secondly, the state intervened in the making of housing models in a significant and lasting manner. By intervening, I do not mean necessarily that the state engaged directly with the production of housing, but rather that there was a high degree of awareness of the importance of architecture in shaping a new subjectivity, and that this awareness is shown by the degree in which the state has supported design education and architectural experimentation. I will mostly refer to the work of three specific officers, Christian Keres, MVRDV and SANA, so as to make the inquiry more specific and enable comparisons. They are all officers whose production embraces a variety of genres, not only housing, and they are all officers that strive to produce architecture that is not only functional, but also conceptually and aesthetically interesting. The intention is to read through their work a possibility of rethinking the, the strategic role of type in the shaping of our forms of life. I have organised the discussion around three main topics, the role of the room, the dialectic of night spaces and day spaces, and the relationship between served and servant spaces. In all three cases, I shall briefly discuss historical models relevant to the respective contexts in order to frame the key design issues at stake. Rooms. We could be nomads in our own home. Until a little over a century ago, Switzerland, the Netherlands and Japan were rural countries. Most households lived and worked under one roof. A standard vernacular mountain house in the Alps would typically present thick stone walls. Its interior would be dominated by a large room in which to store hay and accommodate animals, mostly cows. The rooms for human inhabitation and work would be smaller and often subdivided into an enclosure for sleeping, one for cooking and one for crafts and cheese production. Similarly, the centre of the Dutch Harlan Huys Hall House was a grain storage area flanked by stables and closed at the back by very small living quarters. The use of rooms could shift throughout the day and depending on the season. Flexibility of use was enabled by the lack of any fixed service and simplicity of furniture. Spaces would be inhabited depending on environmental concerns, what was warm or dry or humid or cool or light in a specific moment. The same approach shaped the, Jap the Japanese Minka farmhouse, in which the only fixed element was the hearth, surrounded by alcoves occupied in a variable manner according to gender hierarchies and seasonal comfort. These houses are in a sense pre-typological. They are spatially very simple. Their rooms do not yet represent a rigid diagram of life. Reproductive and productive labour would happen at the same time in the same spaces. Women and men would by no means be equal, but the productive potential of women at least was never doubted. Even in the Minka, which saw a strict separation of genders to the point that men and women would not sleep together, the wife would have a key role as productive manager of the house. However, as we have seen, the modern flat implies a much more strict division of roles within the household. This division of roles is enforced by the subdivision of the house into specific rooms. The room therefore becomes a typological device which enables the crystallisation of the pre-modern fluid mixture of production and reproduction into a regimented modern happy family. As Robert teaches us, to each room in the house is attached a right use, spelled out by its proportions and its infrastructure. Heating available in specific places, light available in others, water confined to the water closet, cooking confined to a stove and separated from the main fireplace. 
In a 2007 housing competition, the Swiss architect Christian Keres put forward an interesting way in which to react to the rigidity of the standard flat. Although all the units responded to a similar brief, two or three bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, a living room, each one presents a different layout. Within the same perimeter, the flats present a variety of spatial relationships and proportions. Depending on the shape and position of the enclosed spaces, that is to say the bedrooms and the bathroom, the remaining floor area gains a special character and unique relationship with the envelope. It becomes a single large open space spanning the whole length of the building, or it is split into two rooms connected by a short corridor, or it is shaped into a sequence of three niches with windows that open towards different vistas. The functional narrative of the individual rooms is not questioned. However, by pushing to the extreme the variety of formal arrangements, the architect encourages the user to misuse the different spaces in unforeseen combinations. Much the same agenda could be attributed by MVRDV's project for patio houses in Yippenburg, uh, 1999. A compact single-storey block hides, in this case, an extraordinary internal complexity. Units include a variable amount of patio space, as well as a standard series of services, kitchen, bathroom, bedrooms. While the single functions in themselves are treated fairly traditionally, the layout of each unit is different and exaggerates a specific feature. Either the rooms are all the same size, or they are arranged as a long enfilade, or packaged in a central core, or dispersed in a constellation of circular enclosures. In the case of both Keres and MVRDV, the simplicity of the overall envelope underlines the fact uh, that the complexity of the interior is a deliberate choice. On the other hand, uh, Ruya Nishizawa's Ida Apartments of 2002, the site, um, the site condition dictates in part the fragmentation of the layout. Elevated above the site, the Ida Apartments are designed as a single horizontal building slab pierced by holes that offer different lighting conditions to each unit. Entrances are organised through staircases, and as most of them give access to just one flat, their individuality is further emphasised. Most of the living space is left unscripted, but due to the geometric constraints of accesses and light wells, the flats present strong formal characteristics that make each of them unique, such as elongated curved walls or corner rooms with windows on two sides. On the one hand, we could say that these proposals expand the existing catalogue of established flat types. After all, they accept a conventional set of purpose-made rooms as basic ingredients of the flat. On the other, the spatial variations they present are so extreme as to question the Roberts model. The Roberts model was ultimately a diagram of relationships and not a formal example, but the formal experimentation presented in these cases pushes the diagram to a limit where its agency is put in crisis. As the rooms present very unconventional shapes, they encourage the user to use them in different ways, to become nomads in, their own, in our own houses. The three officers might have arrived at a similar, similar conclusion, but they probably started from different concerns. Keres's <laughs> proposal seems to be a sophisticated formal and tectonic experiment. Nishizawa seeks to mirror the complexity of the city with an idiosyncratic individual sphere. MVRDV, as in many of its housing projects, is looking for the expression of the time-honoured political and agonistic nature of the Netherlands as a place of differences. Although the agenda that animated the three projects are not aligned, in each case the floor plans spell out the same typological or rather anti-typological conclusion. Evidently, this is not a coincidence. These examples ultimately do share a common goal the attempt to address an inhabitant that is not Robert's nuclear family anymore.
In doing so, they recreate some of the conditions that were to be found in vernacular houses before the typological development of the modern flat. Spaces can be interpreted following their environmental character, their views, their qualities, and not necessarily by virtue of their preset program. This attitude seems an interesting response to the contemporary way of living. We are less and less similar to Tolstoy's happy families and closer to the Tokyo nomad girl, moving camp within our house. This shift highlights the fact that the artificial distinction between work and reproductive labour has collapsed. The home is not anymore the hallowed space of the reproduction of the family. At the same time, the work we undertake outside the home has now increasingly absorbed some of the characters of reproductive labour. It's essentially social nature. It's focus on service and interaction. It's immaterial quality. Reproductive labour is nowhere and everywhere in the city at once. The house becomes a city, the city a house. What we can learn from the way in which Keres and VRDV and Nishizawa mobilise form to challenge routines is that the type is not condemned necessarily to becoming a rigid choreography of life. In its radical disruptive presence, the form of these dwellings seems to introduce an interesting friction into the automatic production of the standard happy family. Day spaces versus night spaces. The house is a bedroom. The subdivision of the house into rooms with specific names is a relatively recent occurrence. In particular, the recent pol- the rigid polarization between a public living room and a private bedroom is definitely a recent construction, as pre-modern houses offer us examples of layered systems of thresholds that manage different social spheres in more complex and flexible ways. The living room and its antecedent antecedent antecedents <laughs> the parlor and the drawing room are perhaps the types of room that emerged more recently as the largest room in the house was by and large uh, as the largest room in the house was by and large a multifunctional undefined enclosure in pre-modern times is it is the bedroom to the contrary that is the first specific room to be delineated as separate from the rest of the house we have evidence of the fact that the conscious planning of the bedroom as a specific room emerged in Europe as early as the 13th century. The history of European furniture shows us how the bed emerges as the first stable, elaborate piece of furniture present in medieval homes. For instance, in an example of an Alpine inn dating from the 1700s, the lower access level is a large unscripted space for trade and storage that serves as the local meeting house and tavern while the upper floor accommodates the owner's family. There are three small bedrooms yet no living room proper. Cooking, crafts and social interaction all take place in the same space. Similarly in the Dutch canal house of the 1700s the bedrooms will be found on the first and second floors. On the ground floor the front of the house would be dedicated uh, to trade and public life, while the back is extended is an extended kitchen living room inhabited, inhabited by women, servants and children. The canal house is, uh, layout is close to its Japanese contemporary, the Edo period Machia, which is also articulated following front of house, back of house logic. As the front of house deals with the public and the back with the family, production starts to be distinguished from reproduction. The woman is pushed to the back of the house or the top floor. Only when the public element has been expelled from the house in its entirety will the parlour, then the living room, be needed to mediate with visitors. These three cases can be considered middle class in their relationship to their respective context. Houses of small-scale merchants... In the two Western cases, we can see that while the living room had not yet appeared as a necessary element, the bedroom was already a clearly defined space. The bed was not necessarily associated with sleep 
sex and illness, so it was acceptable for people to share the same bed, a piece of furniture associated with warmth, comfort and protection, and used throughout the day as a multifunctional space. On the contrary, in pre-modern Japan, the bed was a set of movable futons because the flexibility of this system uh, because of the flexibility of this system, the machia does not need a bedroom as such. In the 1900s, Western-style beds became increasingly popular. With them, the ideology of conjugal love emerged as a social lubricant needed to enforce a specific model of family life. Arguably, the role of women in Japanese society had always been a subordinated one. After all, in the Minka, the women of the household would sleep close to the Irori hearth rather than on the raised tatami platforms of their husbands. This condition, however, allowed for strong social bonds of solidarity between women of different generations, a solidarity that was severed by the introduction of a Western model that subjected women to filtering all their interactions through the husband-wife relationship. What happened in Japan within decades was a condensed version of what had happened in Western Europe in four centuries. The invention of marital love was quintessential to masking the hard reality that the woman was becoming an unwaged worker in the house. Marital love shrouded this condition in the rhetoric of voluntary care for one's loved ones. The architectural invention of the bedroom as the ultimate place of privacy, as the locus of marital love, was essential to this narrative. However, in recent years, working and living habits have changed and the use of the bedroom cannot be confined to a solely reproductive role. Thanks to portable devices and internet connections, we perform more and more work in the house, reading, writing and using social media. This turns the bedroom into a living room, something that is that had already been very clear in the 1970s when architects such as Ettore Sotstas and Archizum posited the bed as a place of socialization, work and entertainment. It is therefore not surprising if, in the recent work of Keres, MVRDV and Sana, we find a number of projects that blur the distinction between day spaces and night spaces. For instance, in Kerez's apartment house in Fosterstrasse, Zurich, 1999-03, the layout is conceived as a fluid interior. The rhythm provided by the load-bearing structure. The rooms are not imagined as strictly partitioned boxes, but rather as a sequence of spaces within which it is up to the user to, user to establish a hierarchy of public and private. In Copenhagen, MVRDV converted a silo into housing, Frost Silo, 2005, designing open space flats in which the bedrooms are separated from the living room with thin partitions in furniture. In fact, the flats appear as generous balconies cantilevering out of the silo structure, liberated from the conventional subdivision into small rooms. Even more radically, partitions disappear altogether in Kazuyo Sajima's Okurayama Apartments, uh, 2008, where each unit is a stacking of one-room spaces articulated through a simple curving in the f of the floor plan in order to allow for variety and visual privacy. Beyond their different working methods, Keres, MVRDV and Sana all experimented with projects that blur thresholds and functional zoning. In all these three cases, at first glance, it seems like the whole house has become a big living room. However, I would actually comment that the whole house has rather become a bedroom. The tendency to receive guests in one's house has almost disappeared in big cities. The number of members of the average household is also shrinking, meaning that the living room is less and less public. In fact, the size of the living room has been steadily decreasing in the standard flat in developed countries. The living room, even devoid of its hospitality role, has had its, held its place as the largest room in the house in the last few decades, thanks to the presence of the TV. But now that the TV has almost exited the house, we might imagine that the living room could shrink or even disappear, allowing for the appearance of different systems of organisation, 
fluid enfilades of bedrooms, aggregation of individual cells, unscripted sequences of spaces. The reason why this process is interesting is that it uncovers the importance of the bedroom as a productive place. The Roberts model had constructed the main bedroom of the house as a hidden enclosure. The importance of this enclosure was inversely proportional to its visibility as, by hosting sleep and sex, this room became the very place of the reproduction of the workforce. Already in Roberts' model, the bed was far from being solely a place of intimacy, removed from the realm of production. In fact, it became the prerequisite for any kind of production to take place. Workers needed to sleep and regain their energy in order to perform the next day, so the role of rest is quintessential to any productive system. The productive role of sex is also not to be overlooked. It is through sex that a, new, that a labour force is produced in the form of new bodies, but it is also through sex that workers can find a venting space for their frustrations of their day. This venting space is so needed that the sexual relationship between husband and wife was socially constructed in the 1900s as something in which the woman had no agency, something which in fact did not even require her full consent. It is therefore only thanks to the bedroom that production is at all possible and consumption as well, as our bedrooms have kept on growing in size in order to allow us to hoard more and more possessions. The bedroom therefore becomes critical to feminist theory as it is the place where the modern woman is shaped as incubator of the workforce, while also being encouraged to become a perfect consumer. But reproductive labour does not only take place in the bedroom, as it comprises a multiplicity of efforts needed for the physical and emotional maintenance of the life in the house. Moreover, today the task of maintaining and managing life is not anymore the sole domain of the housewife, but also at different levels of most post-industrial workers. We work by relating to each other, sharing knowledge, discussing, taking care of other people. We work by making our very effectivity productive. Managers, teachers, consultants, nurses, creative workers at large and anyone who works in the service industry are all part of what has come to be termed as effective labour. Effective labour is labour that mobilises our social capacity. As such, we could say that reproductive labour is the most primitive kind of effective labour. To state that the house has become a bedroom means, therefore, to acknowledge the fact that reproductive labour has become the engine not only of the domestic condition, but of our post-Fordist life at large. The three case studies in Zurich, Copenhagen and Tokyo show how there have been recent architectural experiments that attempt to reject typological thinking applied to housing in favour of a more entropic, free-flowing understanding of space. However, if we define type as a spatial organisation that shapes a specific subject, we can also see how this non-type is ultimately a type. Traditional flats address the nuclear family and the rigid division of productive wage work from reproductive labour. Contrarily, the fluid non-type addresses a society in which diffused effective labour has rather become the norm. Serving spaces versus served spaces. Downstairs is the new upstairs. If the dichotomy between night spaces and day spaces is a fundamental element of the modern flat, an equally rigid hierarchy has been established between served spaces and serving spaces. The Roberts model makes this hierarchy very explicit by ejecting the cooking space from the main day space into a small scullery attached to an equally small water closet. This very limited enclosure is the origin of the modern kitchen, that is to say, the place that more than any other has symbolised the institutionalisation of domestic work. As the kitchen needs fire and water, it is perhaps the first typologically defined space to appear in houses. The hearth is, after all, a primal figure in many cultures. Neolithic dwellings, we could speculate, are extended kitchens of sorts, equipped with space to sleep. 
In ancient Greek culture, the word oikos, which is metonymically used for house, uh, indicated, in fact, the corner of the house that hosted the only fixed hearth, the other rooms being heated with movable braziers and often a well or other source of water. Until the invention of complex chimney systems, not all dwellings in a multi-storey residential building could have an independent kitchen. The preparation of meals was by necessity a a social chore, much more so than today. Due to the technical requirements of kitchens, buildings often presented just one kitchen, even when they hosted several households. This condition did not only apply to the countryside, where families were inhabited by extended where farms were inhabited by extended families, but also in cities where housing blocks could contain several units, but just one main cooking space, either on the ground floor or in the attic. If kitchen work was often shared, the same could be said for bathing. Again, due to the effort needed to gather and heat clean water, bathhouses were very common in many pre-modern cultures, including most notably Japan. However, it was also possible to clean oneself more summarily at home, but due to the lack of plumbing, water had to be carried in buckets to the wash basin or domestic bath, and people could wash themselves in any space of the house. The bathroom contained only a set of pieces of furniture, from chamber pot to wash basin and ewer to bath, which were often shared. Their use did not necessarily imply the privacy we associate with them today. They could be moved from room to room in order to allow for different uses and were not attached to a specific space, although, of course, proximity to a source of water and heat simplified the logistics of bathing. If the kitchen was a fixed piece of infrastructure, the hearth, and the bathroom was constituted by movable pieces of furniture, the technological advancements that appeared from the 1800s onwards have drastically changed this condition, as exemplified by Robert's model. With the invention of the cooking range and of optimised flue systems, every flat in a multi-storey building could be equipped with a scullery, demoted from its social shared role. The single-family kitchen scullery becomes a mere functional appendix um, of the emerging living room. This process of optimization would continue in the next century, most notably the studies of Christine Frederick and Margaret Schutelhotsky, highlighted the need for an actual ergonomics of the kitchen in order to make the work of the housewife more efficient. Whilst these studies were arguably motivated by emancipatory intentions, they helped to develop kitchens that have become increasingly rigid in their composition due to their technological complexity. The movement of bodies in the space of the kitchen is scripted very precisely, the space minimised, the social role of what had once been an informal space is all but lost in the standardised kitchen we see in most housing developments of post-war era. The kitchen has become just a cubicle in which the woman is supposed to do her duty as efficiently as possible, interacting very little with the other members of the household. In fact, as it has been argued by the Wages for Housework movement, the development of optimised kitchens has exacerbated a rhetoric of frugality that puts squarely on the wife the task of making her husband's wage last. One of the most paradoxical and cruel tropes emerged in the early 1900s with the attempt to convince the workers that they should not campaign for better wages and working conditions, but rather should force their wives to spend less and manage better their households. It is through cultural leitmotifs such as frugality that capitalism drove a wedge between working class men and working class women by typifying women as spend thrift in stark contrast with their wage-earning husbands, or saintly mothers in stark contrast to their lazy out-of-work husbands. So while the bedroom enforced marital love as something women had to endure, 
therefore making honesty between spouses hard if not impossible, the kitchen drove men and wives apart by making money not a simple pragmatic concern, but an actual measure of one's worth as a worker or as a housewife. The characters of the good wife, the honest worker, the woman who does not enjoy sex, the violent husband, are are present perhaps by default in any time and place, but they become full-blown stereotypes only when helped along by a rigid choreography of family life in a flat. By replicating the Roberts model, typological thinking in architecture has somehow legitimated this process. As early as 1915 in the Netherlands, the kitchen had lost its raison d'etre as social core of the house, as exemplified by the plan of a unit in Michel de Klerk's Eigenhard estate. The disproportion between the small kitchen and the amount of often unused living room space becomes a clear diagram of the bias gendering of the house. Even in groundbreaking projects such as the Swiss Seed Lunghalen by Adelia Five, an otherwise progressive social agenda ends up failing to rethink the kitchen, which is conceived as a cubicle. Looking towards the back of the complex, the kitchen is separated from the living room by a staircase, as if to highlight its secondary role. But perhaps the most radical application of the Roberts model comes from the case study that is most distant from Britain. In the post-war Japan, the introduction of the Western flat was a fully-fledged project of social engineering, often enabled by companies that would provide their salarymen, waged workers, with uh, housing intended completely to change traditional habits. No more nomadic sleeping, no more communal bathing, no more fluid spaces. The rooms in these complexes, known as danchi, which strategize in order to divide not only genders and ages, but also men's production outside the house from women's reproduction. It was a series of compartments ready to be cleaned and maintained by just one person, the wife, the sole caretaker. Looking at the shortcomings of these 20th century examples, we might ask ourselves how contemporary architects confront the issue of the relationship between served spaces and serving spaces, namely kitchen and bathroom. One of the most striking responses to this issue is represented in the Apartments with a Lakeview by Christian Carers of 2005. The bathroom is designed as a solid enclosure, a monolithic room jutting out of the main body of the building. On the other hand, the kitchen is positioned in the middle of an open space, almost like a piece of furniture floating freely in the living room. This solution represents a radical inversion of the pre-modern character of these two spaces, fixed kitchen and movable bathroom. The same thing happens in the Gifu Kitagata flats designed by Kazuyo Sejima 2000. The flats are conceived as a sequence of identical rooms, one equipped with kitchen appliances positioned in the middle of the space while the bathroom becomes an enclosed separate core. With their 2002 Silo Dam building in Amsterdam, MVRDV wished to demonstrate how it is possible for a single development to accommodate a large variety of housing types, and yet all these different units share a few key characteristics. They all present a service spine containing the fixed bathroom, whilst the kitchen counter is placed as a freestanding element in the middle of the main room. These three projects register a new way of looking at the kitchen, a shift that is perhaps needed if we want to reevaluate the role of reproductive labour. In the preceding century, technological advance has not always contributed to the emancipation of reproductive labour. The rhetoric of the efficient kitchen tends towards the underappreciation of the effort needed to provide food. In fact, the modern kitchen generates new work for the housewife who is isolated from her peers and tasked tasked with the satisfaction of desires that are made increasingly more complex by the diffusion of consumer culture. 
However, if technology has not helped women's work in the previous century, it might well start to do it now. New systems of wireless powering, detachable induction surfaces and diffused air vents are making the kitchen increasingly nomadic. This means that the kitchen does not need to be a cubicle anymore, but could rather become just a series of small objects, detachable, movable and safe to handle, so that all members of the household potentially can use them, even children. The kitchen walls are blurred and disappear. Not only eating, but cooking as well becomes a social activity. On the other hand, as the experiments of Keres, MVRDV and Sana show us, the bathroom has become not only the most fixed element in the house because of plumbing and sewerage, but also the most private, perhaps the only truly private space. As the bedroom becomes a place of work and the bathroom becomes fixed, almost monumentalised as the embodiment of privacy, it is difficult to say which space is a servant and which is a served. The subversion of traditional patterns is made possible today by emerging technologies. However, I believe that this form of typological experimentation is supported but not driven by these technologies. In fact, even at a time when wireless devices devices were still unthinkable, attempts to disrupt the hierarchy of the Roberts model have been infrequent, but by no means insignificant. On the topic of serving and serve spaces, perhaps the most radical proposal was presented in 1992, uh, in a 1992 competition, Housing Barcelona, by Jan Neuterlings, Alex Wall and Javier de Gaita. In their entry, the facades of a residential slab constituted a wall of services, leaving the centre of the building free, unscripted. It is impossible to label these spaces as bedroom, bathroom, kitchen. Intimacy and publicness can both find their place in this scheme, but their negotiation is entirely up to the users. Ultimately, the proposal is as a liberating is a liberating and ironic inversion of the standard flat. The servant becomes master, the upstairs downstairs. Gender roles have to be rewritten. As we have seen, the idea of type in housing has been instrumentalised to produce standardised subjects. However, as these last cases demonstrate, type is not a static concept, but rather an evolutionary process which contains within itself the constant possibility of reinterpretation, perversion and change. Epilogue. We live in the office, work in our home. As Andrea Branzi claims, architectural diagrams such as the bourgeois flat have become increasingly inadequate in terms of living and working conditions that can nowadays be explained using traditional categories. The home is a workplace and our workplace becomes the very locus of our social life, labour and love, necessity and ambition, collaboration and competition have become inextricably linked. But women have been in this condition for a long time, well before the emergence of post-Fordism. This is my key reason for taking a feminist standpoint in this inquiry. Women have been relentlessly shaped, measured, encouraged, pushed and coerced by residential architecture in the age of type. It would stand to reason, therefore, that women should be the first to reject typological thinking, as it has been such a successful tool for the strengthening of gender asymmetries. And indeed, female thinkers have done so not only through their political writings, but also through architectural projects. Between 1987 and 1990, Kazuyo Sejima designed two houses she called Platform 1 and Platform 2. They are conceived as one-room spaces open towards the landscape, although Platform 1 in fact contains a series of more typologically defined rooms tucked away under the main space. The platforms use light, industrial materials, their interior is not partitioned and their envelopes transparent, and in this they seem to continue Ito's power research. However, 
Due to the complex and fragmented geometry of the exterior walls, the effect is strikingly different as the ever-protagonist tent of the pal is here blurred and dissolved, leaving the roof to emerge as a single guiding element. And in fact, Sajima conceived her platforms as the opposite, intended as a critique of Ito's pal. Architecture is envisioned here as a loose platform open for different uses. It is not the space for a family, but neither for the nomad girl. Is it, a, it is a space for nobody in particular. Perhaps the platform is not even thought of as a space, but rather as a machine to be used for a while and then left alone. The platform refuses to become a primitive hut, refuses to conform to any of the topoi of architecture as we know it. Sajima declared that she wanted to challenge the idea of architecture as a thing in which to wrap people up. Inhabitants use the platform rather than owning or being owned by it. In this case, Sajima's architecture is conceived as pure infrastructure within which concepts such as production and reproduction, office and home, do not mean anything any longer. In fact, these two projects do not attempt to reform or rethink the domestic condition. They reject domesticity to court. Although they are simple, almost minimal projects, they are not diagrammatic. They do not indicate relationships, nor possible uses, nor choreographies. Platform 2 in particular is not a project that can be described through what it does, for it does nothing. It is not meant to perform any specific way if it is not as an area of transit open to the interpretation of who will inhabit for a while. The two platforms cannot be translated into a typological series, nor reduced to a spatial organisation. Platforms are a thought-provoking response to a typological tradition that is often served as a tool for the exploitation of women within the home. Sejima was not, at least explicitly, motivated by a feminist agenda, but she was interested in challenging the straitjacket of typological thinking. Ultimately, I do not believe that there is such a thing as feminist architecture, but I do think that as architects, we should learn from feminism how to pay attention to the construction of subjectivity. In this context, type cannot be used solely as a formal category, but should be seen as an experiential and political one. This critique could potentially be applied at all scales architects deal with, from the house to the construction of territorial types. We might then ask ourselves whether this critique implies, as in Sajima's platforms, the need to abandon type as a tainted category. I hope the examples I have discussed in this text show that this is not the only solution, but that there are still opportunities to reappropriate typological thinking. It is ultimately a question of awareness. We citizens architects are all at the same time victims and villains in this story. The domestic exploitation that once targeted women has escaped the house to invest the whole of the post-industrial world. Effective labour mobilises the whole of the worker's life. It knows no nine-to-five. It makes leisure indistinguishable from production and blackmails us into accepting poor wages for the love of entrepreneurship and creativity. The hyper-style, uniform grid of the typical plan has moved from the factory to the office and finally to our homes. We are left with the difficult choice between two scripted destinies, the happy family or the hipster loft. The city has become an infinite domestic interior, formally and socially, as the traditional boundaries between production and reproduction, home and workplace are increasingly blurred. As in the case of Henry Roberts' model houses, the relationship between city, type and subjectivity becomes a complex field in which architects are challenged to intervene. The examples we have seen tell us that ultimately we are destined, all of us, regardless of gender and class, to become housewives. And they also suggest to us that when it, that happens, Le Corbusier's opposition between architecture and revolution and my own opposition between type and revolution would have no meaning.
for revolution could only be possible by starting again through a counter-planning from our kitchens.